0: What if you sold your company for $169 million before your 30th birthday? It's the kind of dreamy success story that we love to read about on the pages of Inc. Magazine, the kind of story that maybe we are striving for as entrepreneurs, or maybe we're a little jealous of. Today's guest has just such a story. So we talk about the things that it's allowed him to do and the things that his success has taught him. But also the hard parts, the shadow side, the panic attacks, the sense of needing to figure out how to live your life post-exit. My guest today is Aaron Houghton, and he has spent the last five years of his life post-selling three companies, trying to figure out how to help entrepreneurs be healthy and well He himself has been through the ringer of his own panicking and anxiety, both in the process of building his companies, he started when he was 17, and in the post-exit journey. So Aaron is now doubling down on founder well-being. He recently launched an organization called Founders First that in many ways shares some similarities in goals, values, and scope to Zen Founder. Founders First is dedicated to helping all entrepreneurs to effectively manage stress, maintain physical and mental health, and to know that they are not alone. So he'll talk about his work in the context of our conversation, but if you're curious, you can also check out foundersfirstsystem.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Aaron, and thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs. And I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Erin, it's been really cool for me to hear about your work, especially since in this iteration, this phase, what, 3.0 are we in of your career? <laughs> I don't know where you start counting. You're really doubling down on conversations related to mental health and well-being among your fellow founders.
1: Yeah, this last couple of years has been all about trying to be brave enough personally to share some of my experiences with anxiety and depression and just not being able to maybe trust my own mind in moments under the pressure of being an entrepreneur. And so part of my healing process has been to come out and share these stories that honestly were terrifying to share and that I didn't share with even the people closest to me in my life for so many years. And that has has turned into over time, and I'll tell you it wasn't easy at first, but has turned into over time a real gift in my life that it's connected me with so many other people that have felt the same way and has made me a much happier person by being brave enough to share some of these things. And now we're starting to feel normal sometimes to share, but it's taken many years to get there.
0: Yeah, I think you know one of the things that i appreciate about your story like many entrepreneurs is it feels like you've lived a lot of life in a relatively short amount of time and just hearing your description of starting your first company at at 17 and then moving towards a sale before you were 30 over a 100 million dollar sale just this phenomenal success as a very young person and now moving into this next phase where what you're seeking is more wisdom and connection and these maybe different kinds of things than what you were after at the beginning do you observe that change in yourself sort of these these transitions
1: yeah i think the the biggest wake up call for me was these a couple of very poignant moments after selling my business in 2012 so it was 2 weeks before my 31st birthday and you know everything that i had always wanted in life was to be a successful entrepreneur i just kind of doubled and tripled down on trying to build companies that people would respect. So maybe that the world would respect me at at my core. I'm a, you know, a kid from a, a small town near Asheville, Western in Western North Carolina. So I've just always felt like that person kind of try and prove myself to the world. And, you know, I thought success would deliver what I wanted from maybe that ego support standpoint, and you know, help me become this person that i that I wanted to become. I grew up reading in you know like Fast Company magazine and Wired magazine about these internet icons and to me, it was just these kind of shady cast of characters that came from all different parts of the world but somehow found success and I thought, well that I identify more with that than you know traditional business people and CEOs and even founders and so that 's what I chased for so long and then I had these these a couple of really important wake up calls for me after my exit where I realized that the patterns that I developed along the way becoming a successful entrepreneur that I didn't really like, and we can call those, you know, anxiety and depression and some technical terms, but also really just being kind of profoundly unhappy and less happy, the more successful I became. So as my business success went up and my financial wealth went up, my personal happiness and my restlessness with life just continued to go in the wrong direction. And so I started to realize that these were just two completely different things. And they should be, as resources, managed in different ways and should have even their own goals around them. Because business, success, successful entrepreneur, those were all kind of in a separate category that in the end didn't really serve me very well.
0: And we assume that they're positively correlated, right? That as your success goes up, so does your happiness, very generally. As your accomplishment goes up, so does your sense of satisfaction and well-being in life. And I think what you learned is that they're separate indices. They're not necessarily interrelated in the way that we expect.
1: Yeah. I mean, growing up as a kid watching MTV, that's what all the rap videos told us was going to happen. Right. And it's just, uh, they, you know, they let me down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> rap video disappointment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I bought into it, I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, we all do because it because it feels, it feels obvious. It feels like it should be true. And I I don't think it's just the rap videos. I think it's sort of the assumption that all of us are under as we're growing up, as we're sort of going forth into the world. Do your work, work hard, achieve, and that will be the key, right? That will be the thing that you seek. And I think in hearing you talk about this moment after your exit, when you had buckets and buckets of money, frankly, more money than most people ever need, this realization of your own deep unhappiness what was the first sort of moment when you were like, whoa, I am successful in in this sphere, but as a human, I'm really not okay?
1: You know, the happiness side of it, I think, was kind of bumping along. It's like, hey, you know, I'm not quite where I want to be, but, you know, I'm also 30, 31 years old, and, you know, I've got a lot of life left. I've got a lot to learn, and I can't imagine that I've got everything figured out. What really stood out to me, though, was that I started to have these kind of mental health events, and there's a panic attack that I had in June of 2013 that was just absolutely crippling, not just mentally, but. But physically, I, I was literally so consumed by tension in my mind and in my body that I couldn't stand up. I'm, I'm stuck on my office floor and I'm staring at the ceiling fan above me, what feels like for hours and may have just been a couple minutes. But you know, I feel almost like I'm paralyzed in that moment, physically paralyzed. And I actually have so much pain in my neck and my back that even as a 31-year-old, I'm starting to wonder if I'm having a heart attack. Like I feel my entire body just cramping. And I think in that moment, I realized, like, I think I'm probably going to die if I keep doing what I'm doing. Like, I don't know what's going to kill me, but this feels like being kind of on the edge of death. I'm terrified. I feel like I'm out of control. I can't trust my mind. I can't trust my body because I'm telling them right now to stop doing this and it's not working.
0: Can't get off the floor.
1: Can't get off the floor. So clearly that's not going well. And at that point, you know, what resources do I have left to command to try and bring myself back to health again, right? If I can't trust myself to even think the way I want to think or to to move my body in the way I need to move, like I knew that things like working with therapists existed, I guess I maybe didn't think it was for me. I hadn't ever spoken with a therapist before. I thought maybe they were going to try and tell me some things that I was going to disagree with or something. So I had in my mind, like that might be a next path. But even in that moment, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't know if I can find a therapist and pick up a phone and, and talk to them. I don't know if I can go to an office. Like, I don't know if I can stand up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I can even move. So I lost all trust in my own personal agency in that moment. It was a, it was a dark moment. And I think, that was that was one of my big wake up calls because I had to say, well, not only am I not super happy right now, and yes, I'm working on that, but like I may have also lost my ability to try and become happy and to control how I get there, and that became really really scary. And so my takeaway in the moment was, you know, maybe I needed something to blame it on, but I looked back at my 15 years at that time of being an entrepreneur and, and building 11 companies. And I said, you know what? I think what may be wrong here is that for all of these years, also, you know, if you think about it, those were, you know, age, let's see, 15 to age 30, right? Starting a company really, really young. Like those were very formative development years in my life and developmental years in my life. And I was under extreme pressure. In fact, even going back as far as my junior year of high school, I ended up in the hospital for stress-related overwork, working out too much at the gym for athletics in school. I played you know, two varsity sports, as well as you know running my small business on the side, and so I had a very long-standing pattern of treating myself poorly. And I started to look back on it and say, you know what, that probably just didn't work. That was not the right strategy.
0: Well, it's like you you pushed, you pushed, you pushed, you pushed so hard until you fractured, right? Your body wouldn't do what you wanted it to do. Your mind kind of betrayed you, even your feelings and your thought processes suddenly felt strange to you. And I think, I think that experience of pushing to the point of feeling then fractured is not, you know, that people go through that in different levels of severity, but people go through it pretty regularly a lot, but that's part of even the iteration of, of adult development is reaching these breaking points where we're like, wow, I'm hitting a wall. And I realize I, I cannot continue the way I was going. I have to do something different.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a universal experience with entrepreneurs that I've talked to. My um, friend, Eric Severinghouse is writing a book kind of on this topic right now. And he, he actually summited Mount Everest in May of 2018. And he says very publicly, that climbing Mount Everest was the second closest, the second scariest thing he's ever done in his life and the second closest he's ever been to dying, being an entrepreneur was the first. And that comparison where we look at people in some of these physical pursuits and these elite performers, and we kind of idolize their brushes with death because you can picture them falling off a 5,000 foot cliff. Those experiences are very alive, unfortunately, for many of us as entrepreneurs every single day. And then the cliff doesn't look like a rock cliff. But, you know, Eric shares that being an entrepreneur in Chicago, standing and waiting for the L train in the in the peak of brutal stress and pressure, had the thoughts, if I just stepped in front of this train, all my problems would go away.
0: I wouldn't feel like this anymore.
1: Yeah, that's what the cliffs look like for us as entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people have thoughts like that along the course of their lives. And obviously, those are hard thoughts to talk about, hard thoughts to even know what how to make sense of them in our own minds. and I've been grateful along the journey for our helpers, right? People who have some training and how to hear those thoughts without freaking out or sending you to the hospital or, you know, just to sort of say, yeah, those kinds of hit the wall thoughts are part of the body and the mind's warning system to say that what you're doing is not, is not healthy. It's not helpful.
1: Yeah. And they're, they're scary the first time I encountered them at least. And my solution in those moments was to say, well, that's awkward. I should just ignore that. Like, let's sweep that under the rug.
0: Right, let's not do that again. Let's not do
1: that again. And let's try and move on to some type of distraction, right? Let's go back into work again, or let's find something else to be distracted with. Another friend of mine shares becoming obsessed with becoming a triathlete, well, at the same time as being an entrepreneur, because just he needed something else to obsess about, (laughs) to get his mind off all the things that were tough. And so it was a long time before I was actually, again, I I use the word brave here, I think, because that's what it felt like brave enough to actually be willing to even talk about those thoughts and feelings with other people. And I didn't share them with my co-founders. I didn't share them with my investors. I didn't share them with my employees. I didn't share them with my close friends. I didn't even share them with my wife for 98% of my story as an entrepreneur.
0: It sounds like it wasn't until you'd exited the business until you're, you know, 31 and laying on the floor that it came to a point where you felt like you could no longer contain it.
1: Yeah. I, I felt like it was a low enough point you hear the model talked about maybe in, in addiction and other places where people hit rock bottom, right? And maybe the hard work that I felt like I was going to need to do to fix it was also scary. And so it had to get bad enough that that looked better than just continuing to suffer from it. I think that's why I, you know it got so dark for a while. It was really, really uncomfortable. It was really scary. And I took complete responsibility for the way I felt. and I And I also internalized it to think that I felt this way because I was weak, I wasn't strong enough as other founders that get put up on stages to talk about how successful they were, they never talk about this stuff. So clearly, they're not experiencing it. it was my own kind of delusion in my head that this is just my unique experience. And I'm not suited for this type of work, again, reinforcing that I'm this fraud as an entrepreneur and shouldn't be successful or just got lucky or, you know, all these thoughts that always scared me in the back of my mind as well. And it was it was hard to start to come to grips with how I might find my way back to being okay again.
0: Or even learn it for the first time. I mean, I think about you starting so young, being 15. I mean, your brain's not even done cooking until you're 24. So like, you know, so much of just your growing up experience was deeply integrated with this deep drive to push hard and be successful that it's almost like there wasn't, an establishment of of homeostasis without that level of ambition. Many folks who start really young have that experience of like, they don't even, people don't even know what it feels like to be in a state of calm centered presence where they're not pushing into the next thing or the next moment or future oriented for what their next move is.
1: Yeah. That fact has been really exposed in my life from the relationship that my wife and I have. So we've been married for 14 years this year and we're together for five years before that. So almost 20 years. So she's been with me from the very kind of beginning days of my entrepreneurial journey. And there's a a hand sketch drawing that she did of me when we we met in college. And so I was running companies then and of just the top of my head, looking over the top of an IBM ThinkPad laptop. And she drew this pencil sketch and, and shared it with me, not out of any frustration, I think around it, but just more of like, this is how I see you. This is our life. You're looking at me across a laptop screen it's really just stunning and kind of emotional to think that that's actually her reality. But I think a big part of that truth is that that's always who I was. That's who she met when we first met. Somehow she was accepting of this, but this is who I am to her is this kind of workaholic focused person. And in recent years, it's been, it's been interesting to try and kind of rediscover our relationship with each other because I'm not that person anymore. I still work hard, but I have very good balance and take balance very, very seriously. And we've definitely had moments where she's like, why are you in my house right now? You're supposed to be working. You know, who are you? And why are you <laughs> why are you here so much? Especially with COVID. I think we're all experiencing that with COVID. But we've had to kind of, you know, reinvent who we are to each other because of that, because that's who I became in my late teens. And, you know, that was just the only current, the only direction the current was flowing. There was no real balance to it.
0: Well, how have you learned to be a different kind of person? Because that's not easy to do, in your mid thirties,
1: yeah, I saw you know something a couple of years ago about how you know what was it most of our neuropathways pathways are kind of solidified by age thirty five and it's hard to think differently or something like that. I think some of the more recent research, I guess, around neuroplasticity is telling us we we can change these things. Would you say would you say it's harder though as we get older to heart? more work to change?
0: I think it's harder. Sure, you're, the the patterns are more entrenched, so you're undoing like paths that are dug in more deeply.
1: Yeah, I did um, did a, a program. It was actually for like public speaking and communicating in Chicago two years ago. And one of my classmates there worked for a she was an actuary, so a statistician, and worked for a company that specialized in behavior change in big organizations so they would come into big companies and try and coach behavior change of certain different types and so i was like all right this is really interesting because i'm just starting my journey now to try and change who i am and so i said to her if i've been a certain way for 20 years without any you know attention to how i was it was just kind of my default pattern and it got deeper and deeper and deeper how long how long will it take for me to become somebody different like have different habits and patterns and ways of thinking and in some ways, I was scared asking that question because I was hoping it wasn't 20 years.
0: <laughs> right. What's it going to take, Doc?
1: Yeah, what's it going to take? Or, or never, right? Like, sorry, you're, you're who you are now. You can't change. I didn't fundamentally believe to be true, but I wanted to know what kind of science and data and, and statistics it said about other people's behavior change. And what she shared with me was, was really positive. So I think it was another one of these steps on my journey of starting to feel like I can do this. But she said that she was like, all right. And of course, I'm the entrepreneur. So I'm like, really oversimplify this for me, right? Like, (laughs) I don't want to know all the theories. It's like, if it's 20 years, give me a number, right? Is it one year? Is it 10 years? Is it 100 years? Whatever? is it impossible? And so, you know, after she refused to give me specifics a couple times and I insisted on it, she said, all right, so let's call it, I think you can do it in 10% of the same amount of time if you bring intentionality to it. Because what the data shows is that if you're intentional about behavior change and trying to develop new patterns, that it happens a lot faster than default behavior, digging in patterns. So I was like, all right, that's really optimistic. And she said, there's context around it, right? So there's this. the book, Atomic Habits, a couple of years ago talked about this, right? That like, if you want to go run in the morning, just setting out your running shoes and your shorts and your shirt by the door is, you know, a huge precursor to you actually going running. And then if you just put them on, Even if you don't intend to run that day, it increases the likelihood you're going to do it, right? So you shift your context. You've set something out the night before. You've put the clothes on to go work out. It just increases the chances you're going to do it later in the day. And so you've kind of aligned context around yourself to create an outcome that you want to create. And so those couple of concepts really helped give me confidence that it was possible to change. And so that's a big part of what I've done. Like, I've tried to adjust context. And in fact, I even, you know, moved from North Carolina to Boulder, Colorado, moved my entire family to a place where I knew that I could walk out my back door and go hiking because time in nature was a huge centering activity for me. And I knew if I had to drive 45 minutes in my car to go do it, I would just be less likely to do it. But now I live where my gate opens in my yard and there's nature, <laughs> and it's just so much easier. And so some of it was just around context just changing the pieces around me so that I'll actually do what I want to do
0: did you seek that change by thinking about the behavioral outcomes or by the altered emotion state or how did you even know what you were going for like, i think a lot of sort of goal oriented entrepreneurs will say you know i'm going to hike 3 days a week or but when i think about you laying on the floor at age 31 it's really this emotion state that's broken down. So how did you begin to even reorient what you wanted your life to be or what you wanted to feel like?
1: Yeah, you're probably gonna get a kick out of this because being kind of a computer nerd that I am, software guy, computer science degree, I mean, I wrote code in high school for fun. It's like, that's me. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, I live with some people like that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Got it. All right, so you understand this. I
0: speak this yeah. language, yes.
1: <laughs> so, so step one was a breakthrough in, in my EO forum, my Entrepreneurs Organization forum. And I presented to my forum and basically put this issue on the table. We typically talked about more technical business issues or personal issues, but I just said, look, you know, I sold my company for over a hundred million dollars. I don't ever have to work again. My grandchildren will never have to work if they don't want to. And I have the ability to control exactly what I'm doing in my life. And I'm not happy. So what am I doing wrong? Like, where where did I miss the train here? Like, this is clearly I'm doing something wrong. And I'm taking it very personally because I realize I'm in more control maybe than I I ever was before. And so step two is I created an Excel spreadsheet. So that's the nerdy part. But I wanted to track my own impression of happiness on a one to 10 point scale with 10 being the happiest and anxiety being the primary issue that I felt was preventing me from being happy in a couple of ways.
0: Like your happiness blocker.
1: Yeah, it was kind of my happiness blocker. You know, one, it was my anxiety was often very high, which was uncomfortable. And then two, in order to manage my anxiety, I used things like alcohol to manage them, which then created other sorts of problems and distractions and hangovers and lower mental performance, right? And even depressed mood. (laughs) So yeah, like it worked in the moment, but it didn't work over the long run. And trying to use this as a regular solution over time just led to, to unhappiness. So anyway, so these are the two things that I wanted to track. And I just took a really rudimentary stab at like... And you know, part of this came from my EO forum mate, Mark, kind of coaching me before my presentation to our forum and going back to like, all right, you know, when were you happy last? Like, where, where did you get off at the wrong exit? How far do we have to go back? And I actually went all the way back to high school for when I could think of my happiest moments. And I just kind of dug into like, what was I doing in that time? How did I actually just spend my time? And let's assume that my thoughts probably came along for the ride and, you know, I wasn't doing any too, too intentional mindfulness or anything in that period of time. So let's, let's see how I felt in those moments. And so I came back to time with close peer group, feeling connected, like I had a community and I was safe time with my family, which would have been my parents and my brothers at that time, time with friends, time spent on challenging mental activities, physical activity, so exercise and endurance. I had a list of seven of these things. I can't come up with all of them right now, but I, I just tracked every single day what my highest anxiety point was on a one to 10. So 10 is like Aaron stuck on the floor again, having a panic attack, which has happened again. And happiness 10 is let's, you know, pure bliss and contentment, we'll call it. And I track those things over time and I started looking for a correlation, like what activities can I do that lead me to be happy? And one interesting outcome, so I've actually been doing that now for over 1200 days in a row. That's been several years now and I still track it every single day. I'm scared to stop because it worked. But one of the big epiphanies I think from that was that, achieving things like achievement related things didn't seem to have any correlation on happiness at all for me over those 1000 you know, plus days and even the the one i left on there cuz i felt like maybe i should and i also thought this was part of my identity was the the mental challenge having some amount of mental challenge every day solving a problem could just be even reading a good book or
0: intellectual stimulation
1: intellectual stimulation yep i eventually took it off the list <laughs> it just for me at least didn't correlate that closely with happiness and you know, I guess I'm just a simple person, but I was happy to go for, you know, a two-hour mountain bike ride with friends, have connected time with people, have exercise, be outdoors. That seemed to work. So there were other things that worked better for me than some of the things I originally thought.
0: That you thought were making you happy or could drive your happiness. Yep. Hmm. So good old data collection. <laughs>
1: it's funny when you walk into a therapist's office with a rudimentary built spreadsheet of tracking your feelings for the last five years and dump it all on them and say figure this out doc
0: (laughs) yeah can you look at the look at the relationships i mean as a as a therapist for many entrepreneurs like that is absolutely not surprising and frankly would be lovely to even work with someone who is able to engage in that level of self-reflection. Because collecting the data, I think it becomes the hard part. Even having the courage to kind of peer into the the black box of the mind and, and sort of wonder like, what's in there? Why isn't it working the way that I think it should?
1: So in my work that I do now in, in Founders First System, where I'm working with entrepreneurs, I have a list of things that I ask people to track that I've kind of expanded from my own experience with this that's a little bit broader. In these two. But one of the big things that people share with us constantly is, you know, I thought I was really good or balanced in the mood category, or I thought I had really good calm states on a regular basis, or I thought I had consistent energy until I started tracking it every day. You know, if I look back at the last month, I mean, I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. I don't know about you, but like, you know, that's too much work to even look back. If, I, if a therapist asks me, you know, how have you been the last month? It's really hard for me to come up with what I think is a meaningful answer if I'm not looking at it in some small snapshots each day because I will run how I think I felt through today's filter of how I feel now, <laughs> right? Of like, I feel great today. So therefore five days ago when I was so depressed, I couldn't move, you know, I was actually okay that day. Right. Cause
0: retrospective bias. It was fine.
1: It was fine. Cause I'm clearly here. I feel great now. I've so, made it. Right? I'm alive still. So <laughs> yeah.
0: therefore wasn't that bad. It's not worth looking at. <laughs>
1: right? Totally. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I do think the moment to moment shift does keep us from Doing a good introspective kind of rundown of how we are actually functioning, because if you catch someone on a good day, then all is great, and we see it through that filter, and if you catch someone on a bad day, then all is bad, and we see it through that filter and so the ability to kind of take your filters off and look with some objectivity at your own self is such a superpower in terms of of finding that true homeostasis or true comfort level internally
1: so you know a bit about my story now. how much do you think is people just reaching 30 years old and starting to become more introspective and trying to understand themselves versus like you mentioned before, right? People sometimes have their moment on the floor like I did and have this, you know, kind of hit a wall. How much is each piece, right? I mean, we're all obviously hopefully getting better and thinking about ourselves more and how to be the best people we want as we grow up. Do you see that pattern among people you work with? Like are everyone in their 20s as clueless as I was and is everyone in their 30s as as hopeful as I am?
0: (laughs) I mean, I do think there are trends in adult development and we don't talk about that enough. Even among people like me, psychologists, we spend a lot of time looking at child development because the the shifts are so dramatic. You you couldn't walk and now you can jump and run. It's amazing. And it happens in two years. It's crazy. And so I think we don't give enough credence to the kind of normal ups and downs that go with adult development. I mean, Eric Erickson is a old school intro to psychology theoretician who talked a lot about adult development and this sense of in your, you know, your early adulthood, you're developing your identity. You're also developing your capacity to be in intimate relationships with other people, to be a person in relationship, but it's not until your thirties, forties, and onto your fifties that you're really like leaving your mark in the world. And I think With a lot of entrepreneurs, especially folks who start young, and especially folks who are really successful, really young, in some ways, their developmental trajectory gets a little bit rearranged. I mean, you by 30 had kind of finished your legacy, right? Like your grandkids don't have to work. Like you checked off the box of what you are giving to the next generation and the generation behind you, at least in terms of objective wealth. And that usually doesn't happen until your 60s, right? Like it's a very odd developmental trajectory for an adult to be on. It's great. Congratulations. But you now have 30 years of figuring out what's meaningful now. How do I fill in some of this meaning of why I'm here? I mean, I certainly can't say, hey, this is this part of it comes from this and but your experience of Working so hard, being so driven, being so successful at such a young age, I think is, again, this unusual developmental pacing that lots of people would have kind of psychological whiplash from. That said, really on the decade mark, people do go through really significant shifts in what they're focused on. So turning 30 for a lot of us, you know, when in your twenties, you say yes to everything, you are kind of open to all experiences. I'll try that. I'll do that. I'll take that position. I'll try that job. I'll write that paper. And then in your thirties, you begin to be more selective. Like, Oh, actually I don't want to hang out with those people anymore. I don't want to spend my time on this. We're starting to really sort of parse and sort who we are. And then in our forties, we're building our castles, right? We're really doubling down on what we're Sort of contributing to the world and that, and it goes on. So all that to say, we'll see what happens when you turn 40. And then again, when you turn 50, you might have some more laying on the floor moments because most of us do.
1: Yeah, definitely that big four coming up soon. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, definitely been mindful of that. I think the other big thing that, you know, changed for my wife and I was, we had our first kid at 31. So like we started our family broader as well too, right. So a huge, pivot point, I would imagine, in a lot of people's lives where you start to think about priorities differently. And those things all just kind of happened at the same time for me.
0: <laughs> right. Which, again, is not that unusual. I think a lot of those things kind of collapse together. Yeah. And I guess one of the things I'm curious about, too, and I think some of the listeners would be, is, is what obviously you've taken your own self-initiative and really taken ownership of tracking your own personal metrics, I like to say, and then implementing changes based on those metrics. But what role has therapy played or outside help or mentoring in your experience of kind of healing from some of the hard parts of your earlier entrepreneurial journey and then finding a new level of meaning and satisfaction?
1: Yeah, the the therapy side of it's been, been really, really interesting because first of all, it's really fundamentally changed who I am. And I see that sometimes when I like, overshare really personal details with people that I don't know that well, <laughs> which is kind of funny, right? Or I'll just share something that's like, you know, and I won't call it oversharing because I'm comfortable with this now. And I actually think it serves me very well in my relationships to share these things with people that I don't even know that well. But it is funny to meet somebody for the first time and go through some of the casual conversation about how are you how are you today? Oh, and how, how are things going? And blah, blah blah and then I'll just, you know, share something like deep about my current mental state or where I've been struggling recently or my biggest challenge in my life. And it's kind of, interesting to watch the like slight reset and recalibrate from the other person. of like, whoa, oh, hey, go. Oh, okay. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> I didn't expect you to actually say how you were doing. I was just looking for the fine and move on.
1: Yeah. And it's been a great filter because you start to understand who has the Kind of emotional intelligence to be supportive because <laughs> because a lot of people will just quickly be like, oh, that was an awkward share. And to the next high level thing. I'll oh, look at the weather, right? But a lot of other people can be like, oh wow. I felt that way before. And you know, in fact, I've had that struggle as well. Maybe, you know, if you want to grab coffee, I'll talk happy to share what worked for me or something. Right. And it's like, wow, that's a relationship I want to invest more in. I want to have more people like that in my life versus the other type. And so, you know, we're all on our journeys together. But yeah, therapy has given me some some just simple mental models around anxiety management and thinking about like, what are the underlying patterns and behaviors that drive some of these outcomes? You know, my social anxiety was so bad in the, in the two years following my big exit in 2012, that even simple things like going out to a nice restaurant with my wife, like I would be super anxious in public and like, how close the table next to us was would bother me. And like, I was getting stuck in everyone else's conversations and hard to even focus on a conversation in a loud room that I'm having with someone because my mind was just in anxious mode and it was off running, probably trying to protect me from all of these things that seemed scary at some level in my crocodile brain underneath. So yeah, it was, you know, starting to kind of have different ways to think about those situations, to be able to respond in those situations with either a statement and that, you know, maybe everything's going to be okay, or more of like, oh, yeah, I did just catch myself getting into that kind of not useful mental pattern there. And I've identified it and and kind of, you know, let it go, not fight it, but more of like, oh, yeah, that thing my therapist said the other day, look, I'm doing that right now. Oh, that's kind of funny, right? Kind of laugh about it and say, oh, it turns out these things maybe are, are simple. <laughs> there's some frameworks that are, that I've thought are so complicated, all these things that have just seemed to be so out there and so loose, there's some structure behind it. And again, as kind of a logical thinker, I appreciate that. I thought, honestly, that was one of the things why therapy wouldn't work for me is because I was going to be like told that I should believe something that I don't believe and that my opinion or my ego or my intellect would fight back against that. And instead, what I've really found in it is that I get new ways to think about things and it challenges what I thought was true before, or maybe I didn't even think was true, but I default mental patterned into a belief in my mind and the ability to just assert a couple of other possibilities in those moments is a really, has a really staggering outcome for me. Just it's amazing to think, wow, you know, whatever that pattern I was stuck thinking about before was, doesn't feel so true anymore. Once I consider these other three possibilities in the moment as well. Yeah. I don't really know what the truth is. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right?
0: So this diversification of your mental model, right? You have a pattern, you can identify the pattern. And I think, I think therapy or the, the voice of a helpful external observer is just to diversify, to give you like a multiple choice question rather than single answer.
1: Yeah, and over time I started to get more confidence from therapy and to the fact that I actually took two years off starting a couple years ago. So that ended about six months ago, but I decided to, as part of my recovery, just stop working on professional pursuits and start working on myself. And I did something that's a little bit weird, I think, which is that when I stopped and let go of all my professional identities, I hired an executive coach for me.
0: (laughs) When you were no longer technically an executive. No business card, (laughs) no title.
1: (laughs) you know, chief of my life and happiness, maybe. But yeah, there was no, yeah. And, and so I literally treated myself like a business project, I guess, because that's the only way I knew how to tackle big projects and tried to break it down into pieces. And I hired a, a business coach that I worked with for two years. And that was an incredibly fruitful process for me as well. And it gave me, it gave me the confidence to try some really, really scary things. So as an entrepreneur and a successful entrepreneur. And as a person who struggles greatly with anxiety, I had this constant challenge around public speaking, which is that I was constantly asked to speak at things and I was deathly terrified of public speaking. came from some incidents in, in my childhood. And, you know, those beliefs stuck with me that I was bad at it and that it would incite a panic attack. And so, of course, it did every single time because that was my belief about it. And the more I worried about it, the worse it got. And I decided in my first three months of working with my coach, that I wanted to tackle that head-on, and so that was I alluded to earlier. I took a public speaking class in Chicago, but before that, I actually committed to give an hour-long keynote to an executive education program at MIT with sixty global CEOs in Boston.
0: Way to jump off the deep end!
1: It was it felt <laughs> good in the moment.
0: Like go to your kids' <laughs> kindergarten class and do like career day. I mean,
1: <laughs> I should have see. I should have. <laughs> you could have helped me better at the time, but I had I had just what I had.
0: Just go, just go,
1: just go. And so it felt amazing in the moment to be brave and commit to it. And then the next day I woke up in like a cold sweat going, clearly I'm going to die because that's how I feel about these things. And then I went and did it and I did actually a pretty good job. And in fact, I talked about something I was passionate about, which I hadn't talked about before, which was my own struggles with mental health and as an entrepreneur. And it was the first time I ever talked publicly about it, which I also scared me even worse because I was talking to a large group publicly about this. And I did it, and I pulled it off, uh, you know maybe not an award winning public speaker on the first attempt, but you know maybe the second time will be, but yeah, I did it, and you know I feel like the the coaching process around that I would not have been brave enough to do that without someone walking me through why it's important, why I do want to do this, why I may you know benefit from this, and why maybe the risks that I think exist around it maybe aren't even as bad as I think they are,
0: yeah. As in you probably won't die.
1: Probably won't die. And I, and I honestly visualized both success and failure in it quite extensively beforehand. Of like, this is what I think failure looks like. And here's what the next day would be after that failure. And here's what I would do the next week after that failure. And here's what I would do the next year after that failure. And it started to all look like it didn't really matter that much anymore.
0: Like it's all survivable. It's all survivable.
1: Probably not going to die. And honestly, giving a talk about mental health and anxiety as an entrepreneur, like there might actually even be benefit to what I'm calling failure of like complete breakdown, panic attack while giving a speech. Like, guess what? Exhibit A, here I am.
0: Looking in real time is happening right now. I don't always
1: <laughs> offer this to all the people I speak with, but just today for you, I'm going to give you the real thing.
0: We're doing a lab. <laughs>
1: yes. The real thing. So I was like, you know what? If I'm just going to be honest and authentic about it, then most outcomes are going to look more positive even the ones I'm scared of.
0: Yeah, even if it's a little messy too. Well, what are the outcomes you're going for now?
1: So, personally, happiness. Legacy is one that I um I still shy away from a little bit because I accomplished a lot of, you know, all of the business milestone kind of goals that I set out for myself. In fact, you'll find this funny because the original goals I set out for myself, again, being kind of a nerdy kid was that, I wanted to create a company where I wrote software to solve business problems and also built the hardware that ran the software, like would build the computer that would also run the software to solve their problems. And I got a contract to do some work through a little kind of software development firm I was running as a college student my junior year. That did exactly that. It ran an entire business. We built the software and hardware. So I actually met all of my life goals <laughs> that I set as a teenager, <laughs> which maybe were oddly low, but um, that's just what I wanted to do. I thought it'd be cool to have the skill set and, and build something. And so, yeah, I kind of hit all those at age 21. And then, of course, I just moved the goalpost like we all do and said I want to build a million-dollar company and then a $10 million company, then a $100 million company. And shockingly, you might not believe this, but after I sold the company for $169 million, I declared to the world that I was going to build a billion-dollar company, which I now have no interest in doing. But you know, the legacy part of it for me has been has just come out of this organic process of sharing my story and realizing that how realizing how deep my relationships and connections can be with people that I know well and also with complete strangers if I just share exactly what's happened in my life and the things that scare me and the things that I feel like I'm not good at the things that the thoughts that I feel like hold me hostage and I just put that all out there and so that's led me on this journey where now I spend most of my time talking with founders about my story sharing models that I've developed that worked for me and seeing if they work for them. And to me, it's, it's just really iterative. I, you know, I do have, in the business I've created around this called Founders First, we do have a goal, which is to positively improve the lives of a million founders. But my personal passion behind this is really just the next founder. It's whoever I talk to next. I got a a call on um, Thursday from a friend of a friend who was in crisis and just needed somebody to talk to. And it's not a commercial activity. It's not a way that I make money. It's just, it's amazing that people now reach out to me when they have these same problems. And I don't have any real qualifications to guide them other than that I can just share my story. Here's where I've been. Here's what worked for me. I want to try this. Worked for me it's simple. Here's, here's the things that didn't work. And here's some stories from other people that have, you know, allowed me to share them as well. So we can all f- understand that we're in this together. And though I just live from those connection points to the next connection point where I get to get to help somebody and get to be in a conversation with somebody who's struggling. And I can, I've can i been given this platform by having a large exit as an entrepreneur that some entrepreneurs just happen to listen to me and respect what I have to say because I built a big company, which I don't take for granted. And I, I try and use that now to not tell them how to build the best new marketing plan or how to scale their executive team, but instead how to take care of themselves. And I had a huge breakthrough on on last Thursday with this gentleman who called me he's got a day job as well as an entrepreneurial side project. And he said, I've had, you know, hundred hour weeks for the last couple of weeks at the day job. And I've just jumped back into what I'm working on in the startup and I just can't do it. And he's describing a situation and I'm like, you're just burned out. I get it. You've worked too hard. And I said, you know what? Working on your startup is not self-care. That's more work. And there was like silence for 20 seconds. And then he goes, I've believed that to be true for the last five years. Oh my gosh, you're right. That's not (laughs) self-care. No wonder I'm burned out. And so for the last five days, he's been sending me his accountability list every day for what he's, what is he going to do for himself every day? And we just text back and forth. Those little gifts are, are just huge to me. So I just live from one of those to the next every day.
0: Well, it sounds like a very um, lovely existence in a lot of ways, Aaron, to feel like you have the, the space and capacity to both pursue your own happiness, but then also to support others in the pursuit of that happiness, meaning, satisfaction,
1: yeah, I think we're, we're all going to define happiness a little bit differently. But I think the number one thing that I want entrepreneurs to understand is where we started this conversation today, right? That there's just two different things to optimize around and personal happiness, joy and contentment, you know, is maybe in one box and success, awards, accolades, revenue, exits, investors, milestones, product launches. Those are all great, too but they're in a different bucket. And if we can treat those as two separate things, I think people can avoid a lot of the suffering that I put myself through.
0: They both have to be nurtured, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to learn more about what you're doing, more about the Founders First system, what's the best way for them to follow up with you?
1: Yeah, it's really easy to find us. So we've got a free community of founders talking about their mental health and performance and being vulnerable together and supporting each other called the Founders First community. And the easiest way to find it is just pick up your smartphone and go to the app store and search for Founders First Community, join the community and join the conversation there.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks so much. We'll definitely uh, include that in the show notes too. So if people are driving or missed that, they can find it there.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Sherry. And everybody who's listening, uh, if there's anything I can do to be helpful, find me in the Founders First Community. I'm there every single day answering questions, asking questions as well. (laughs) I'd love your thoughts on some of these struggles that I've had as well. So join us there.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast.